Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, journalists, entrepreneurs about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Today, we're here to introduce a new book to you, Flash Crash. Uh, uh, it's written by Liam Baugen, who is an investigative journalism a journalist for a Bloomberg and Bloomberg Business Week. He has received multiple awards for his work uh, and his last book, The Fix, how Bankers Lied, Cheated, and Colluded to Rig the World's Most Important Number uh, was a bestseller as well. And uh, this recent bestseller, Flash Crash, was on uh, Financial Times Best Book of the Year Award and, and all, all kinds of uh, wonderful lists you, you may find online. So it's, it's a wonderful, fascinating read that we'll soon introduce you, to you. Uh, I'm also here with my friend, Michael Senka, uh, who is a senior uh, at, at Princeton with me uh, hosting the show. So Mr. Valgan, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, absolute pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me. Mr. Valgan, why don't we uh, begin the interview with a very generic question, which is, uh, what did you talk about in, in Flash Crash? What is this book about? So Flash Crash tells the story of the uh, May 6, 2010 financial crash, um, when a trillion dollars of value was wiped off uh, global stock markets and futures exchanges around the world. Um, and then the kind of unlikely character at the center of, of uh, the investigations into what happened, a guy called Navinda Sorrell, who's like a British day trader, a bit of a kind of outsider type figure who lived at home with his parents and traded out of a bedroom in his kind of family home, um, made a huge amount of money, but also was, was later, uh, you know, criminally charged with an offense called spoofing, which is a type of market manipulation. Um, and so the book really tells the story of him and how he ended up getting into the position where he gets blamed for this thing and also explores really, I guess, the evolution of the markets that he was inhabiting. So Flash Crash was the event, as, as you mentioned, that occurred on May 6, 2010. It was also known as the crash of 245. It lasted about 20 minutes to 36 minutes, if you counted different ways. But uh, I uh, was just in the gym yesterday with a couple of friends of mine, and I said, I'm going to have a very exciting interview coming up about this event called the Flash Crash. And they said, Tiger, by the time you get to your third question, your interview would have already lasted longer than the actual <laughs> crash. Why should we care about a crash <laughs> that lasts shorter than half of your interview? So why is the, what is the significance of this yes. event? So the flash crash was this event um, that occurred, yeah, in, in May of 2010, which uh, during that period was a very sort of tumultuous period in financial markets. Uh, it was the height of the Eurozone crisis. So after the sort of financial crisis of, of 2008, um, that sort of played out within the governments of, of European countries. So these countries are called the pigs, you know, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. Um, they'd essentially bailed out their financial systems and, and were you know, struggling to, to be able to, uh, to, to raise any money themselves. And, and so therefore they were in real difficulties. Markets were kind of very volatile as a result of that. Um, that day itself was, was a, the British general election. Um, and I think there was some kind of US economic data that came out as well. So there was all these macro conditions that made the markets very volatile. Um, and over the period of the day, um, there was a kind of steady decline in, in uh, the, the S&P 500. Um, and then, as you, you know, as you say, there's 245 um, in New York and, and one, well, it's 1.41 p.m. in central time 
because it started in the um you know the chicago, chicago. markets yeah uh, the market just suddenly crashed and you know uh within a period of five minutes or so four minutes i think um from memory the s p 500 futures market uh crashed five uh, percent which was the fastest it had ever fallen before um and the cme the exchange had to stop the market it was the unprecedented thing you know the market froze and then after that there was this kind of period in which weirdly futures started to rebound but this carried over into the stock market as well so you had individual stocks which were suddenly trading at like in some cases a fraction of a cent and in other cases at like a hundred thousand dollars um so it's kind of hate you know it's kind of mayhem that went on and then almost just as quickly as it collapsed things recovered uh and as you say you know i, I kind of make the analogy in the book if you go away for a, if, if a trader had gone away for a coffee and a sandwich and come back to their desk they might have missed the whole thing <laughs> yeah. um but but you know to your point as to, to why it mattered it was really an eye-opening event um this kind of watershed moment that demonstrated to the world that the markets had changed uh, you know, and it really sort of highlighted the automation of financial markets over the previous few years, which had gone broadly unnoticed by sort of, you know, mainstream America. But suddenly, you you know, the financial markets, you were looking at a situation where 50% or so of every transaction was going through these new firms called high frequency trading firms. And so suddenly, everyone was asking, what the hell just happened? Could this happen again? Um, and you know, do we need to regulate these HFT firms? And do we need to understand the automation of the markets in a way that we haven't done before? So it was more about what it portended than the sort of financial um, ramifications of it. So that's a really interesting point you end on of sort of what we do from here. And I think the last thing that I sort of want to establish uh, before digging into that for the podcast is, you know, what exactly now that there this, there's this terrifyingly scary quote in the book before you know the thing actually happens where you know nav has this computer up running and to quote it says nav has fine-tuned the system to the point where he could more or less nudge one of the world's biggest markets around at will there is this huge power that suddenly he has gotten and you know the main point of curiosity is how how did he get this right there, there's this discussion of sort of he saw this spoofing in the market and decided to you know join the mob instead of try to beat them and you know from your perspective sort of what's the what, what's the main upbringing for how you know how nav came to power so to say <laughs> so how did nav come to power like he um after university was essentially doing sort of dead-end jobs. He got a fairly average degree at a, a mediocre university, but he was incredibly um, gifted in some ways. So he had this kind of real gift for sort of um, mental arithmetic, and he had an amazing memory, almost like a, a photographic memory. Um, and one day he applies to an advert uh, in the back of a newspaper saying, wanted futures traders. Um, and, you know, he <laughs> from those very lowly beginnings, he goes to this place, it's called an arcade. It essentially doesn't look much different to maybe like uh, an internet cafe or something, whereas a bunch of young guys essentially being backed, um, you know, to, to, to learn how to trade. And anyway, to, you know, to, to sort of cut into, you know, through, <laughs> through a large part of the beginning of the book, like he, he just, it turns out Nav's incredibly good at that. Um, and he just ups 
the stakes of the amount he's trading and the more money that he has behind him the more brokers are willing to give him leverage and the, the bigger size that he's able to to trade and you know one of the really shocking things about the book is by the time the flash crash comes around nav is in a position to place orders worth like literally hundreds of millions of dollars and he's doing this from his bedroom um and and nobody's really stopping him him doing that um and i think you know regardless of the question as to whether or not he caused the flash crash, just that in and of itself is, is pretty shocking. Um, and, you know, it, there's a whole host of reasons for that. One is the, the exchange and the, the sort of um, the markets themselves encourage as much trading, as large trading as, as kind of possible. The other thing is that, you know, you have to trade through a broker if you're trading futures, but brokers are incentivized to, have their clients trade, you know, as, as often and as large as, as they possibly can. Um, and Nav had just this kind of insatiable appetite for, for taking on risk. So where other people might have been afraid to have lost their, their money, he, he was willing to, to put everything on the line, um, which turned into a real kind of asset, um, you know, when it, when it came to his trading. I guess to quickly clarify for our listeners again, just in case if people still don't know what we're talking about, NAV is basically the person that is accused by uh, the US government as the person that triggered the 2010 flash crash, basically from his his, his bedroom. And and Mr. Valgan, you didn't uh, lay down a, a definitive claim or conclusion in your book, whether you, you believe it happened or, or was actually due to him or not, which we can get to later, but, but I guess, Perhaps maybe we could first yes. clarify the concept of HFT, high frequency trading, and this term called spoofing, which are two foundational concepts yes. uh, very central to, to this story. So, so it might be helpful as well um, to sort of give a, a, just a quick pricey of the whole narrative of the book. So essentially, Nav is this very gifted trader, and he learns to trade on his own, and he's very successful. Uh, and he goes from literally having nothing to being worth about $2 million dollars uh, in the space of about five years, but gradually he finds that his ability to trade very short-term um, market moves, which is something called scalping, um, gets weakened by the arrival of high-frequency trading, um, you know, in the kind of late 2000s. And to your, you know, to, to your question, HFT is, is a bit of a sort of woolly term, but there's, there's some specific academic um, definitions that I, I choose to use in the book, but it's essentially a type of, of trading which is fully autonomous and it, and it involves taking large positions, but then not accumulating large positions for any length of time. So you're constantly trading uh, and then you end the day flat or neutral. So you're not taking any kind of position um, based on market fundamentals or what you, know, the, the, what you believe the true value of, uh, of, a, of an instrument or a relationship between two different securities is, you're looking for short-term anomalies. Um, and it's really based on, or one of the fu fundamental tenets of it is looking at what's called the order book uh, at orders that are coming into the market to buy and to sell um, and essentially statistically analyzing that order book for information um, so you can predict which way you think the market's about to move and then you use very fast computers and connections to try and get ahead of those moves. Um, that's a kind of very basic sort of definition of it. But essentially, when Nav started trading, that's not much different to what he was doing. He was essentially looking at the order book as a human being, 
uh, and saying, you know, at a very basic level, well, there's a huge glut of people wanting to sell this future at this point, the market's likely to fall, I'll also sell and I'll benefit from when the market falls. So he's essentially passing the, you know, the, the information in the order book. Um, and he's very, very gifted and he's very good at it. But when computers start to arrive um, and, you know, essentially do that in an automated way, they can do it, you know, much, much more quickly and more effectively and more efficiently than he can. Uh, so Nav, takes this fateful decision um, in the book where he's, you know, he could either decide to walk away, he's already worth several million dollars, but he says, you know, he, he actually writes down on a forum, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. So he, did, he builds an algorithm of, of his own. And what, what the algorithm's sort of basic purpose uh, is to essentially try and trick these HFT competitors into thinking that the market's gonna do something and therefore react in a certain way, that leads to a price move and NAV will then separately trade around that, that price move. Um, NAV was like a real, uh, you know, not a fan of, of HFT and long before Michael Lewis wrote his famous book, Flash Boys, NAV was complaining <laughs> to anyone that would listen about the, 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 the you know, the, uh, the unfairness of, of high frequency trading. Um, and so, he, yeah, he essentially built this machine, which he called NavTrader, uh, which he used to fire orders into the market to try and provoke a reaction from other participants. And then he would cancel those orders before they got hit and he would react. Uh, so he would trade around the move uh, that, that, that was going to happen. Um, then fast forward to 2010, which is the day of the flash crash. On that day, NAV was incredibly active at firing sell orders into the market. The market was already falling, but simultaneously you have these you know, huge blocks of uh, sell orders, which are essentially signals to other market participants that the market's like, likely to fall. Um, and it coincides with this humongous um, drop in market value. And you know, I'm sure we'll get to it eventually, but Later on, he ends up being, um, you know, blamed for essentially contributing to this very disruptive market event. Um, yeah. So I, obviously a lot of the, you know, mechanisms of the crash itself are very computer-based, but when you read the book, it becomes blatantly obvious that so much of this is dependent on Nav's character. Right? He's this special kind of guy that's sort of almost led by destiny for him to take this role. So in the book, you identify Nav as a, you know, a quote unquote scalper, which is yeah. someone who, in your words, analyzes the ladder for clues as to whether or not the prices will rise or fall and notches up small wins and positions himself to clean up should there be a big swing one way or another. And you know, scalpers are obviously far from a dying breed. And I'm curious what, in your view, distinguished NAV as a particularly dangerous and effective scalper. Yes. So, you know, there's a, there's a few things that stand out about both his character and his sort of traits, I guess. One is that he, you know, has this incredible focus um, to, you know, do a, sing, a, you know, a single task, a complex but single task for hours and hours at a time. Um, and, you know, if you imagine scalping, you're essentially looking at something that doesn't look too dissimilar to a, an Excel spreadsheet with three columns, 
and you've got the sort of current prices going down the middle and then you've got all the orders um, that are waiting in the queue to trade at different prices. I mean, just looking at that, it's not the most exciting thing in the, in the world to look at, um, but you know, it's the sort of key to, <laughs> to huge riches and Nav was a keen gamer. You know, he uh, spent his childhood like obsessed with football, but he's the kind of football fan that would be a soccer, I should say, who was like really interested in the, you know, the, the stats and the kind of foreign leagues and a bit of a kind of, um, you know, just an obsessive interest in, in soccer. And then he really gets into computer games and he's incredibly good. I think he was like number 700 in the world at FIFA. So he's got this kind of mind where he's willing to devote huge amounts of time to perfecting a task. He's also got, um, you know, good hand-to-eye coordination and he's got essentially, um, yeah, an incredible memory. So for example, there, you know, there's, a, there's a bit in the book where he goes for this job interview um, and one of the things that they do is they ask you a bunch of, maybe you guys could do this, <laughs> but I was very impressed. They'll ask you to sort of multiply, um, you know, three and four digit numbers in your, in, in your head and Nav could do that quicker than, they could look them up so he you know he had this real ability in, in, in that kind of way um and so it's, you know essentially i i view it that he's he's almost like a you know the equivalent of a has, has sort of got the processing power of a, of a computer <laughs> you know I'm, I'm sure it's true in something like chess as well um where it's about being able to think about the, the times that situations have happened before and apply that knowledge very, very quickly to the current situation and also apply sort of statistical likelihoods to, to, to moves based on his prior, you know, what he's seen previously. So he had, the, yeah, he had this amazing um, ability, but I think the, the well, I, I think there's a couple of things that made him really stand out. One is just that he was so obsessed with it. You know, he really didn't have much of a life beyond trading um he would trade for hours and hours and hours at a time he really didn't take any money out to spend he wasn't like living large he just wanted to beat beat the markets um and the other thing that everyone talks about who used to kind of work with him at various places is that he just had this almost like ice in his veins whereby if he thought he was right he would be willing to put huge amounts of his his entire bankroll that he'd spent years building up on the line because he would take the view that I'm a, a great trader. And if I lose the money, I'll just make it back again. Um, and, you know, most people trade that trade, you know, there comes a point where they have responsibilities and they have a mortgage to pay and they have a family to feed um, and they just can't afford to lose that money. And they'll be lamenting the trade that they missed, but they, you know, the, the, the human, psychology side kicks in and Nav just had this massive advantage which was that he almost um, had an ability just to, to place trades based entirely on their merits and not factor in anything to do with how it would affect him if he lost. So essentially as we're tracking Nav's journey I, I mean we can see that all this kind of took place under the historical backdrop of you know things getting much more uh, autom uh, automated and electronic and um, and then you wrote in the book that most trade most day traders harbored a degree of resentment towards the HFTs but for Nav who had a fierce anti-authoritarian streak it tapped into something deeper which we're, ta we're now talking a little bit more about the rise of high frequency trading and how they basically um, 
more or less uh, squeezed many of the human scalpers out of the market, m- making it no longer as profitable as it used to be. And then Nav, as you wrote, had this deep feeling that how could he compete with a bunch of faceless billionaires who never lost? And how was that fair? The markets were supposed to be the ultimate meritocracy. It didn't matter what you look like behind your screens or where your parents are from. If you made the right moves, you got the rewards, except Nav was increasingly coming to believe that wasn't true. And like so much else in life, the players destined to win were the ones with the most money and the right connections. Uh, so it seems that it tapped into something much greater, which would, would you mind telling us a little bit more about this part of Nav? Was it part of his personal history or flaws that, that made him feel this way? Yeah, so there's a couple of, I guess, examples. One is that he joins this firm, Futex, with no money at all, and they back him. And, you know, he, within a fairly short period of time, like a couple of years, starts making a lot of money. And when he joins, he, he agrees to give them 50% of his profits. And then as he makes more and more money, that percentage goes down. So by the end, because he had like more than a million dollars in his account, he, he only had to give them 10%. But he was incredibly frustrated about having to give, give the firm anything, which, you know, which is fine. But the way that manifested was just in a real um, kind of a, uh, aggressive way. And ultimately, he fell out with Futex, um, and there's a, a kind of sense there um, that essentially it was kind of unnecessary the way that, that the way that he left, but he had, you know, decided that they were looking to take him for, for a ride. And there's this whole other part of the book, which is about how he essentially goes to all these lengths to avoid paying tax um, and to try and, you know, make as much money from his returns as possible. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, people would view that very negatively um and i understand that but i think for nav it was also again came down to people trying to take something that was rightfully rightfully his um and yeah so so the other major piece of evidence for you know for him having that that sort of feeling is that he just would um essentially inundate the CME, the exchange, with emails and complaints and would send them videos about what he viewed as other people cheating in the market. Um, and if you, you know, if you, if you see Nav, like he dresses in a very sort of scruffy way, he's got a very sort of pronounced London accent, he's very unpolished, but he's almost proud of that fact. Um, and, you know, to him, HFT was, was the kind of opposite. It was like, um, you know, the, the kind of elites who had the money that had, could have paid for the technology that could, you know, recruit the smartest kind of PhDs. Um, and I think, you know, a key part of what motivated him is that he was cleverer or he wanted to be clever and, you know, maybe he was. And so, so it became about um, a kind of personal quest to prove himself as, as, as sort of capable of, of beating a, a rigged system. And one of the one of the sort of eureka moments when I was actually reporting the book was that I found his forum posts, like they'd never been made public before. And I was just literally Googling one day and I came across his posts and there was just this incredible moment in 2007 where he writes down exactly what he's thinking, which is that, you know, has anyone noticed that the market is full of, you know, people cheating, you can't hit their orders, people are spoofing, you know, I think it's completely unfair, the market should be a level playing field, 
And then, you know, two days later, <laughs> he writes down, which is very typical of Nav, which shows what an unusual guy is. He writes down for everyone to see, you know what? I'm fed up with this. I'm going to ask the technology company to build an algorithm of my own. I'm going to do exactly the same thing. Um, you know, so as a sort of storyteller, it's very rare that you get that moment where, <laughs> where someone decides that they're going to do something that turns out to be having some really huge consequences for their life. But that's, that is exactly what happened with Nav. Um, but I also think the fact that he, he did that just tells you a lot about how, whilst he was very gifted in some ways, he was also quite naive in other ways, um, you know, which I think helped him make decisions that got him into <laughs> the trouble that it did, because I think most people would have stopped. Right. You, so we've established a, a wonderful picture at this point of who Nav is, what led up to this. And I want to take a bit to hear your thoughts and establish a another character in the story, arguably the biggest and most invisible character, the the government, government regulators and, you know, the police, how they play in all of this. So, you know, as early as there are three acts in the book, as early as the end of act one, you know, the flash crash, the namesake of the book happens. And the rest is sort of the aftermath, how Nav is tracked down and how, you know, regulators sort of respond to this. And I'm curious your thoughts of, uh, do you think the regulators overreacted when such a short event ended up having such a long lasting impact? I'm curious to hear on whether you think this was, you know, more of a black swan, perfect storm sort of event, or if there's, you know, this is an indicator of maybe something bigger going on underneath. Yeah, so, so there's this kind of period directly after the flash crash when there is real scrutiny on, you know, the state, and the architecture of financial markets and the rise of, of kind of machine trading. Um, and, you know, essentially it's been driven by sort of public concern about like, is my, are my savings gonna be safe? And, you know, are commodities gonna be, be safe? Like, it, are we gonna end up in a situation where robots run amok and it's gonna, you know, screw with the, the, the sort of underpinnings of the financial system? Um, and, that goes on for, you know, for a good few months. But, you know, I can tell you that having spoken to, you know, some of the individuals involved, like the motivation was really just, <laughs> which I think it probably often is, is, is to really try and alleviate the pressure on them and come up with a satisfactory response and then move on, move on with their lives. And one of the sort of key moments from a sort of regulatory perspective is in 2011, there on which is when this big set of rules come into the American system, which is the Dodd-Frank rules, which came after the 2008 financial crisis. And whilst that was going through the Senate, there was like an opportunity for the kind of enforcement guys, the sort of cops, to add stuff to the, to the roster and they were having no luck at being able to bring cases against people accused of cheating. Like through the history of the CFTC, there'd been one successful manipulation case ever brought. Um, and so at that point, they used the opportunity of Dodd-Frank to bring in a specific rule against spoofing. Um, and, you know, that turned into a, a very kind of fateful and important moment in, in the sort of history of the policing of the markets, but specifically for NAV, because even though during the flash crash, there was no spoofing rules, uh, these, these kind of rules come in and, and they give 
the regulators a kind of framework with which to go after people who are accused of, of trying to sort of rig the financial markets. Um, I mean, in answer to your question, do I think that they, you know, this was just really a sort of black swan event? I mean, I do think that the, the level of scrutiny after the flash crash was, was warranted um, because I think a lot of what had happened had gone on under the noses of even the regulators. And one of the good things to come out as a result of it is that essentially there was this sort of period in which, you know, and I, I mentioned some of the individuals in the book, but they go through this period of educating themselves really about actually how trading really works. Because the CFTC is this, you know, uh, vestige of like an agricultural regulator. And when it was formed, that there really was no such thing as a sort of uh, evolved derivatives market. Um, and so it's almost constantly looking backwards. And so it took the flash crash for the regulators to try and then grapple with what the markets that they're actually supposed to be policing really function like. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think ultimately, yeah, I, I think it was, a, you know, despite the fact that prices bounced back, it was important for the, for the regulators to try and understand the underpinnings of the market. And so that, I think that was a positive thing that came out as a result of the flash crash. And there were some limited regulatory changes around trying to stabilize the system. And, you know, uh, touch wood, there hasn't been a repeat of, of at least a kind of market, multiple market wide crash um, in the last 10 years. So, Right. Yeah. That last point is sort of a good point on the litmus test, I guess, on if government regulation is doing a good job of making things more secure against people like NAP. And I think the answer probably against spoofing specifically may be answered of, you know, maybe a specific NAV could not come back. But I'm curious of your thoughts and perspective of the ability of the government to prevent something like this, someone like NAV from hacking the system, so to say, yeah. before it actually happens. Yeah, so um, I spend a lot of time in my job talking to people that work at financial regulators and you know, overwhelmingly the experience is like uh, a positive one and the, the people that I talk to are very dedicated and intelligent and, um, you know, focused on the job at hand, but there are certain really systemic and structural constraints. Um, you know, fundamentally there's, there's the issue of resources, you know, so for example, when the CFTC after Dodd-Frank came in suddenly got responsibility for for essentially regulating the global derivatives market, I think its budget went up by, you know, 5% or something. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and these are all, you know, lawyers and uh, investigators that, that could be working at, you know, white shoe law firms or whatever, and making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of dollars. And, and whereas at the regulator, you know, the, the money's bad, the coffee's bad, <laughs> the computers are bad. Um, and so, you know, in answer to your question, I think that, that's a that's a real challenge. And then the other the, the other challenge is about the personnel that they're able to to attract. Um, and you know, I think one of you guys made a really interesting point about how, like, in the cybersecurity space, it's almost like a badge of honour to have worked for the government. Um, and I don't think that's true of trading. <laughs> I do think it's true of, of being a lawyer. Like, I think you know, if you've done a stint at the CFTC or the SEC, then that's going to help you 
land a better job or you know like kind of idea of revolving doors but if you're a trader or if you're a uh, like a programmer or a developer who has got an interest in finance and could work at H an H of T shop I think the work is more fascinating and also the money is just <laughs> just absolutely dwarfs anything you could you could make at one of the regulators so I think a real big problem that they've got is that they're able to attract quality lawyers but the people that they really need are people that really are, are like the people that they're monitoring. Yeah, that's yes. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, that's a, it's a. Um, I do think I I like that you like the relation to cybersecurity because I think that is sort of an interesting story to go off of because you know for whatever reason if you you found yourself being very good you know the equivalent of NAV for cybersecurity you have two options whether to you know go be a rogue hacker or go do something good. You know, there are a number of factors that sort of pull you toward the good. One of them is that the government, you know, arguably has the best training for you in cybersecurity. Another is that you can have a very well-paying job doing hacking. Companies will pay you to do what you love to do, even if you like the hacking side, you know, as long as you don't do actual damage for that sort of thing. And, you know, part of me is curious if the world of economic regulators can learn from the world of cybersecurity in trying to make it cool for the best of the best to come work for the government, whether that means for there to be some government agency that can train these people to truly be the best of their craft, whether that means sort of giving them a playground to like actually mess with markets without actually messing them up. So I'm curious if, you know, you have any thoughts on, on viability of any of these directions. Yeah, so, so one of the things that actually got cut from the book um, I kind of allude to it, but there was like, there was quite a lot about it. There's this kind of episode where the CFTC had hired all these uh, young academics who um, didn't get paid anything or got paid virtually nothing. But what lured them to the position was that they were able to play around with the data. <laughs> so basically, if, you know, if you're, if you're um, like an academic who's focused on market microstructure you can get data but it's usually old and it's usually stuff that's not particularly interesting or whatever whereas if you, if as an academic if you get your pass and you could you could get a, a position at the CFTC or whatever um, you could see entirely up to the minute data and you could um, you know run uh, research on that in a way that you'd never be able to do outside it um, and so I think that, yeah, there is a kind of uh, intellectual draw that the regulators could utilize to, you know, to try and get really smart people to, to work amongst them. Um, it's like, I think part of the problem is that with HFT particularly, is, that, is this a fairly nascent thing? Like, you know, so you're talking about the 2000s, really, that it, begins and then it evolves very quickly um and so you know it might be like a generational thing that in a few years time maybe it's the same as cyber but in a few years time you'll find that you know there will be people that have really kind of important experience in that field making the crossover but so far i think it's been it's it's been tough um i could, I could here's another point of fact at the moment the regulators farm out a huge amount of their data analysis to third-party companies because they just don't have the technology and the resources in-house to do it. Um, I, I guess I can see I can see the advantages 
of that. But ultimately, if you're looking for the regulators to gain their expertise themselves, that's not a great, that's not a great sign, I think. This is the, this touches on so many interesting questions between the relationship of the regulators and the, the real economy or the, the real business world per se. So uh, I remember interviewing uh, one of the commissioners for CFTC, Commodities Futures Trading Commission, Dan Berkovitz. So he was on the show uh, last spring and he was talking about the revolving door. And, and he says, sometimes revolving door is good in the sense that you want people in the government to feel like whatever they're doing in the government right now can contribute to, to their own future. They don't, they're not stuck in the government. So if you work in a government job, that should help you get a better job down the road in the private sector. And if you're in the private sector, you should be able to come back to the government to, to, uh, to contribute. And that's good in some sense. But he also says that it, it's just such a big challenge to attract talents, exactly as what you said. It seems to be somewhat kind of a foundational puzzle. And, and I remember... I always ask regulators this question. Do you think the financial regulators will almost always be one step behind? Uh, is that something we, that we have to just take as, as, a, as a given? That it's always the, 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 you know, the tech giants who innovate first before yes. the antitrust people come in. Yes. It's always the financial market people who Bernie Madoff happens and then SEC finds him. Yeah. So there, there must be something philosophical. Also, I guess throughout your years of, reporting as a financial journalist. I mean, this kind of conversation must happen all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I do think it's a foundational problem. I'm not sure what, what the solution is. Um, and I don't even know if it's that bad if, you know, the government is able to learn constantly and evolve. So even if it's behind, it's like, you know, stuff is gonna go wrong, crimes are gonna be committed. Um, and if the government can learn from, from that, then that's a positive. Um, with regards to, I, here's a sort of real world example that comes up in the book. Like Nav is the second person ever to be crimin, criminally charged with spoofing. It's a brand new offense. And the reason it's a brand new offense is because it comes in with automated trading because human beings wouldn't be so easily fooled or they're not as quick or whatever. Whereas putting false signals into the market tricks algorithms, if you like. So it's a kind of crime that comes up with that. Um, and there's a real debate with both within the book, but just in, in the sort of broader legal and market sphere as to how bad spoofing actually is. Um, so, you know, there is this kind of uh, perspective that essentially markets have always been, um, you know, forums for people to, to trade however they want with each other. And a, an element of deceit is inevitable. You know, you don't have to be honest when you say, oh, you know, I've just had a phone call about, uh, you know, interest in a car, for example. And, and so why should you expect that to be any different within financial markets? But anyway, um, spoofing law comes in. And if you fast forward to today, you know, it's almost been like the entire focus of, of, <laughs> of, the, of a section of the Justice Department, of the fraud section of the Justice Department and of the CFTC for the last few years. Like the biggest cases have all been spoofing cases. Um, and I guess... You know, you can argue whether that's a good or a bad thing. I can, I can see the merits in bringing these cases, but it's almost like they learn, the regulators learn how to do something and then they, they have some success at it and then they change their priorities um, entirely to meet that thing because they know how to do it and they've had some success in the past rather than making decisions based on what 
you know, what is the, the offense that we need to be going off or what are the major issues within the markets at the moment? Um, yeah, so, you know, so, so, so I guess the, the point I'm making is that the other incentives come into play um, and it's not just a case of like looking back and regulating stuff historically. It's also that that can end up setting a regulator on a path which is, is arguably not necessarily what they would do design if it was like in a vacuum so to 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 set up the i guess to start analyzing the morality of this whole situation and the you know dichotomy between nav and the regulators i want to jump a little bit back to the book and what was personally my favorite character who is mr x so for those who don't know mr x is this you know this night trader who essentially acted as the vigilante hero that more or less cracked this case of who nap was and you know mr x in this position he took a very strong moral stance stance condemning what nap did uh, you included a quote in the book at the end of chapter 22 where he says that the you know, this is seemingly a quote about how to find NAV, but the main problem in understanding the event, in my view, has always been the odd obsession with finding a single cause. And I'm curious about your view in this quote, because when I first read it, it sort of puzzled me, right? Because now it seems there's a dichotomy between whether, you know, the cause was really the single person of NAV or whether, you know, Mr. X, who's the person who found NAV, thought it was something more. Yeah, so so I I think the mis you know, first thing I say is like Mr. X was like a joy to write about. Um, I could tell you that I never actually uh, met him, and I still don't know who he is. <laughs> so I had to sort of negotiate with his lawyer. Liam, you don't have to reveal your sources to us. We, we, we know <laughs> well, you secretly. I wish I could, but I can't. Um, so yeah, there was this real sort of uh, like air of mystery about him the whole time. Um, but he was exactly as he comes across in the book, a guy with very, very strong sense of, of what's right and wrong and how he sees the world and how he sees trading. Um, and yeah, so, you know, to, 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 to fill your kind of your listeners and your viewers in about two years after the flash crash, this guy is testing his own trading software at home and he see something that the entire government had missed he sees these blocks of spoofing orders that are entering the market on may 6 2010 and the government has recently set up a whistleblower program where you can get up to 30 percent of any reward or any fine if you bring a case um so he essentially blows the whistle on somebody he, he doesn't know um and that is what leads ultimately to nav ending up in the situation that he did um, I mean, in terms of, of the specific quote around, you know, this weird obsession with blaming on one entity, I do wholeheartedly agree with him. I think that, you know, the press was certainly to blame. I also think that the regulators just weren't clear. Like, what the regulators should have done is arrested NAV and said that he has been spoofing the market over a period of years, including on this one day but they sort of saw the headlines <laughs> and got excited and then led the entire press release and with this kind of idea that he had caused or was a major contributing factor to the flash crash, which, you know, at the very least, they've been unable to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and, you know, there's very good reasons to think that it would have happened anyway. Um, 
and so you know in terms of, of Mr X's response to that he was somebody who was frustrated that people were almost saying well the idea that this guy could single-handedly crash the market is ridiculous and he's saying well no I never said that and we never said that we said that amidst this storm of other factors you know ranging from a, a huge and very clumsy order by this big pension fund in Kansas City all the macro factors that I talked to you about the kind of uh, HFT in a still fairly nascent and unregulated fashion. All of these things came together, but NAV was a massive player and was placing these spoof orders. So it's very hard to extricate what he was doing from, from what ultimately happened. But I think it was very frustrating for, for Mr. X to basically have his whole you know, case that he felt very proud about undermined with a sort of straw man argument, which he never made, which is that NAV single-handedly crashed the market. Got it, yeah, no, that 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 helps sort of my understanding of, of the quote itself. So um, I guess now we can sort of, now that we've set this full stage, we can jump into one of the big questions is nav a good guy or a bad guy so you know uh nav is this extremely complex figure he's been called the the hound of hounslaw i think you know this reference of wolf of wall street and in a very admirable way and then obviously you have characters like uh mr x who uh you know see him as just you know he was confident he was confident and that was the only thing admirable about him and that's what led to to what he ended up doing. So, you know, sort of go, before going into how we reconcile with the two perspectives, I'm curious of your perspective, right? You, you have obviously gotten more attachment to the story of NAV than arguably any other person in the world writing this book. So I'm curious if, you know, through your writing process, was there more of a draw towards what he was doing, more of a draw away from what he was doing? Or what was, what was that feel as you were writing? So, you know, as, as a journalist and certainly doing the sort of narrative nonfiction work that I do, I really just made a decision very early that I didn't want to assemble the facts in such a way as to, as to try and get, you know, the, the reader to either think that he was a hero or think that he was a villain. Because most, you know, firstly, that's like good journalistic practice. But secondly, I just didn't have a view on that myself. Like he, he was this kind of weird, weird confluence of, of things. The reason I think the case was such a kind of lightning rod case and was, was such a big deal is because if you think about the timing, he was, um, he was a, a, there's a, a children's toy that's just going off in my, in my house for no reason. Um, so, so he was arrested in 2015 and a few months earlier, this book, Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, had just, just come out. Uh, and that was a real sort of diatribe, basically, against high-frequency trading. And Michael Lewis kind of essentially said that the whole markets were now rigged, that you don't realise it, but between every single trade is a kind of vulture who's essentially stealing money from you. Uh, and that's the new kind of market structure. And, and so then... If you can imagine, when Nav gets arrested, not only is he a very sympathetic character because he's a kid who lives at home with his parents, um, you know, hasn't really got much of a life beyond this. He's, he's quite a sort of vulnerable character. He's not like 
working for Goldman Sachs or something. You know, he's a kid literally in his bedroom. And then you look at this, this kind of HFT thing. And the, the thing is, like, a lot of people that have been arrested after the event have kind of retroactively talked about, oh, the, you know, the evils of HFT. But NAV did that throughout. It wasn't like a defence. Like, as early as 2007, 2006, there's records of him complaining about other people cheating to the exchange itself. So, you know, NAV later goes on to be diagnosed with Asperger's. And, and you know, I think what you know, if, if you read the book or even like us talking about it, you know, you can understand that why that diagnosis was, was kind of made. But one of the, one of the sort of key tenets of that is that sort of, he, he views the world in a very sort of black and white way. And so for NAV, it was like, I've seen other people cheating. I see it all the time. Nobody does anything. I've complained about it to the exchange. I've sent them videos. I've done everything that I can. And nobody seems to listen to me. So therefore, I'm going to do exactly the same thing. So he, he sort of views it in quite a sort of black and white way. Um, but I think the reason, well, there's a couple, of, a, a couple of reasons why I think there was so much sympathy towards him. And one is that he's like this David and Goliath figure. You know, he is a kid who essentially has learned to fight back against these, uh, you know, um, HFT firms whose reputation at that point was, you know, was really kind of dubious. Um, and, you know, so, so, so there was that kind of moral sense. And then there was the other thing was that it's so hard to make money in the markets with no money and no connections. And, you know, you don't know anyone. You're not on the trading floor. And never just done this entirely off his own uh you know guile and 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 kind of talents and so for a sort of whole generation of like day traders he was a, like a complete hero and you know the the hashtag free nav was going around twitter and um you know everyone was just incredibly sympathetic and even the newspapers you know within a day were like there was an op-ed in the new york times and the financial times essentially basically suggesting a the case was ridiculous and b you know he's he's actually a bit of a a bit of a hero. Um, I guess I'm sort of saying all this to slightly skirt around how I how I view it. I think that a lot of Nav's complaints with regards to HFT, or a lot of uh, you know his 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 animus towards HFT was in was in some cases warranted. But I think that the reason he he objected wasn't really for sort of the good of society. It was more down to the impact it was having on his own trading. Um, I really, really admire, you know, the kind of uh, the craft with which he was able to sort of design the algorithm, uh, get it to work, modify it. You know, there's a certain amount of just sheer appreciation for the for the uh, just the insane levels of success he enjoyed and the fact that he was able to essentially work out how to do that entirely on his own. Um, but ultimately, I, you know, I don't think that, that he's a hero either because I think his motivations weren't heroic. His, his motivations think, were ultimately about yeah. make, beating the market and such and such. Yeah, uh, Liam, I can see the complexity of this moral question because yeah. as, as we've really established for our listeners right now, Nav is this kind of eccentric, you know, as you just said, he was diagnosed with, with Asperger's. He, has that kind of drive and focus and obsession, which made him an insanely good trader, but also personal flaws that he sees things in a black and white way. 
Um, and, and which means that if he is a lone wolf, there are no compliance officers telling him, hey, you should probably not do this and that. So th there was also no mentor kind of like figure in his life that guided him through a lot of those moral ethical questions. So we, it's very hard to blame him per se. And I can also be sympathetic to Mr. X viewpoint, which is that, dude, you ultimately did something that is illegal for the purpose of making your own financial gains. So that is certainly wrong. So that is Mr. X point. But I think all of this happens at a greater backdrop, which is the rise of high frequency trading firms and how bigger players keep getting bigger. And that is also one point I'd love to explore with you. And, and that's something we're seeing in the financial industry right now, because if we talk about a quant trading firm like Renaissance, right, uh, Jim Simons, the man who solved the market you know, as yeah. depicted by Greg Zuckerman and other people about how he, basically a bunch of PhD mathematicians are just using math models to, to do markets. And also you got someone like Citadel in Chicago, huge, huge firm. And so you have all those giants and I don't see how normal day traders or people who do not have that kind of yeah. technical understanding where infrastructure yes. can outcompete them in any sense. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Like, give me one second. I'm going to turn the lights on just in case. Um, you know, if you go on the internet, there's a lot of places that will try and uh, entice people to learn how to day trade. And, you know, they'll continue to advertise courses on scalping and reading the order book. Um, but my personal view is that at least the type of trading that Nav was doing is just obsolete for human beings now because, you know, uh, machines react to new information at a fraction of the period of time that a human being does. They don't make mistakes. They're able to pass vast amounts of data. You know, there's so many advantages. Um, and... Yes, yeah, so, so I do tend to agree. I, um, there is still a place for, you know, for trading based on longer term horizons, I think, um, you know, based on like market fundamentals or your read of a sort of political situation, things like that. But I mean, even that, it was a, there's an interesting fact that I think, you know, there's multiple examples of people that used to work at Goldman Sachs that were like fund managers or were prop traders and were lauded for their brilliant results. And then they leave and they start their own firm with none of the kind of uh, access to what's going on around them, the sort of flow of information, the market color. And within a fairly short period of time, they, you know, they have to fold up their, their fund. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure you guys are aware, but there's just, you know, a lot of literature out there about the fact that it's, incredibly difficult for active fund managers to beat the market over over any period of time um, and i think that you know where hft is successful is it's really about exploiting almost like flaws or features of like the market architecture so it's about like taking advantage of where you appear in the queue or if you combine this order type with this order type and it's happening at such a, a kind of minute and fast level um that you can still have an edge in that um but yeah i mean i don't know it's, it's hard for human beings to to be able to compete with trading i think it's one of those industries where mechanization and automation can really uh drive a you know drive a dagger in the heart of the individual traders
Yeah, I think this last point with the automation is very interesting and starts to get into um, an idea that you referenced a number of times in the book with quotes is the fact that a lot of people like Nav sort of see this whole job, this process, like a game, like a game that he's been playing since he was a kid. In a recent interview, you wrote that Nav likely saw himself as playing a game and, you know, saw money like a high score. In a sense, Nav did not, you know, you could argue he didn't really understand or care of the real world consequences of what he was doing. And, you know, this yeah. goes back into spoofing and everything like that. But this is, you know, starts to tap back at the question for, you know, how much is Nav to blame versus the, you know, high frequency trading landscape, which has sort of turned this whole very sensitive job to the economy as, you know, looking like a game. Yeah. I think that one of the lessons or one of the things that I, you know, come away from the whole process of writing it thinking is that there's a real difference between law and kind of like morality and ethics and the law. Like the law is essentially a set of rules and they have to be drawn somewhere. And, you know, essentially, Nav, looking at it in a complete vacuum, if, if you were to explain to somebody what HFT is, which is what Michael Lewis did, you know, it's essentially very smart people looking at trying to jump ahead of forthcoming market moves and spending huge amounts of money on, on, on computers that will allow them to do that and to cancel orders in such a way that they're almost guaranteed uh, profits. You know, so one of the big HFT shops, I think it was Virtue, put in its, in its IPO prospectus that it had had one losing day in like five years. You know, and, and that sort of almost goes against the sort of fundamental tenets of, of economic theory. Like you're supposed to take risk and lose. Like, and, and if, if you don't have to, if you can't lose, then I, I think that, that that talks to a system that, that needs, to be, needs to be addressed. But I think that, you know, you... You know, as you as you sort of touched on Tiger, there's this kind of point that the HFT firms know where the law is because they lobby for it. You know, <laughs> like yeah. the rules are set and, and determined by the biggest firms. There's a kind of revolving door between the regulators and the exchanges and the firms themselves, and so they know exactly what they can and can't do. Um, and so someone like Nav is looking at it, saying, "Well, hang on a minute, the whole thing's crooked. Like they're all just pulling as many orders. They're cancelling 95% of orders. They're you know, they're trying to incite market moves, they're spoofing. Um, but what he, you know, but he, it's almost like he, he can see the truth, but he can't see the wood for the trees, which is like, yes, but they're, what they're doing isn't illegal. Like, and so ultimately it, it almost kind of doesn't, um, you know, it, do, it doesn't matter. Like the, the law has to be set somewhere. And if, if you cross that line, then even if you think you're justified in doing it, you're ultimately going to face the consequences. Um, and I think that that's almost like a bigger point than, than, than this, this, this in this book. That it's like we have to organize society against some certain rules and, and those rules are sort of given some kind of moral or ethical weight, but ultimately they're just like guidelines that people have determined in a room somewhere at one point or another. Um, and that just happens to be where that line is, you know, is, is drawn. And you have to respect that as part of a, of a society. You don't have the right to determine which laws you think are just and which ones aren't. It, um, 
I guess we, we've been talking about some of those philosophical questions, which are awesome territory that we're finally getting into because uh, the, the book, as you said, is also documents this trend, this greater trend, this new era of trading that took place in the digital realm as opposed to in-person trading. So because you, you, you described, it used to be that you are in in-person trading pits, especially in Chicago or whatever. And then a lot of those skills that would be required for good traders is the sense of what's going on. You have good interpersonal skills. But when everything was moved to the automated world, the NAV strengths become true strengths, which is single-minded focus, mathematical brilliance, you know, the agility, the extreme risk-taking. Um, and I wanted to ask you your thoughts on this because we also touched on this, this rise of PhD mathematicians and computer scientists basically usher into, I would even say the front of financial world these days. And yes, as you, as you said, there are still people who are investing in the fundamentals, but those seems to be increasingly not outdated, but kind of more traditional way of fundamental investing. So it seems that there's almost this math, mathematicians, PhD math are, are often seen as nerds in schools, right? Whereas the MBAs, the, the hot guys who go work for investment <laughs> banks and stuff, they're all the, the cool kids. But right now the nerds are basically taking over Wall Street, yeah. making more money, uh, <laughs> taking bigger bets, and just doing cooler things and pushing the frontier more than all the kids that bullied them back in elementary school or something, right? And that is fascinating to me that that must reveal some kind of fundamental direction of where our world is headed. I mean, in this new yeah, data science. Definitely, but, but I think that, you know, I sort of hinted at this at the end of the book, but the next step is really like AI and, you know, human beings just have like having even less of a, of a role. You know, so previously, as you say, trading was like a guy making a decision in a pit. And then it became like a guy designing a simple algorithm to help him trade. And then it was like designing an algorithm that you could leave on most of the day. And now it's like, you know, algorithms that make decisions and change their strategy. So you can just essentially press the button and just, you know, intervene when, when things goes wrong. Um, and so I think that, you know, even the nerds are going to, going to fall away and it's going to be <laughs> fewer and fewer human beings that are required. Michael will be out of a job in 10 years or something. Oh, I'm sure so Michael the, will be the, one of the ones that are, uh, <laughs> the, the math skills will no longer be, be useful. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you, Liam, but you, you, were, you were saying. Yeah. No, um, I, I'm sorry. I've, I've lost my, uh, my train there. Slightly. We were just talking about, I, I guess, how PhDs, mathematicians are, are I guess, taking over. But uh, yeah, M Michael, I, I, you, you wanted to say something. Uh, oh, um, uh, no, no, no. It's just, <laughs> just a funny comment on that. But um, I guess they, uh, to, to, to follow up from here, there is an interesting relation that you made so talking about how you know ai becoming the next step right the program controlling the market right if you know if nav's computer was really doing the fault how do we you know blame nav when it was really the computer and you made a very interesting point of um relating you know the sale of a program being like the sale of a weapon the sale of a car right this idea of responsibility for the algorithm itself and obviously there are you know a lot of fields like you know, computer vision and facial recognition are starting to realize like the impact of a poorly designed algorithm. And I think, you know, this kind of relation that you're making is you know, very important to understand the responsibility of this algorithm. So I'm just curious uh, from, 
you know, your perspective of, of this relation in your head of relating it to the sale of a weapon and what lessons we can sort of learn from regulations of, of things like weapons, which we, you know, have been doing and are experienced in for quite some time. Yeah, so, so this is, uh, comes up directly in the book because, it, you know, for all his brilliance, Nav wasn't a computer developer. And so he designs this algorithm very, you know, very clearly knows what he wants. Um, but he sends that to a third party developer in Chicago, this guy called Jitesh Thakar. Um, and this guy goes away and he essentially builds this, you know, I call it a spoofing machine in the book because that's really what it is. Like it's this out, it's like it's a, a collection of algorithms that he can turn on with his interface that allows him to place huge blocks of bogus orders into the market and then like it allows him to cancel them very very quickly so they don't get hit and he doesn't end up losing losing money essentially um and after nav's arrest he ends up um doing a deal essentially with the feds um and there's a couple of strands to it one is that he helps them with their understanding of the markets and he's almost like a guide to hft for the for the prosecutors but the other thing is that he has to give up his um his developer and so i was actually there at the trial um and you know this guy jitesh his argument is essentially that he's like a car dealer not a you know a, not a gun store but he's a car dealer and that you know someone takes his car from the forecourt and then uses it for a hit and run well he's got no knowledge of that uh, and no kind of responsibility or culpability for that um but you know in this specific case i would argue and certainly the prosecution argued that it's pretty clear what this algorithm was for like it essentially had fairly basic functionality which was to place and cancel huge quantities of orders and the spoofing rules basically say that you can't place an order which you intend to cancel um and so the whole crux of the case really became about did this guy make this thing knowing that it was likely to be used for a crime or for you know for, for bad intentions um there was nothing illegal about making it in and of itself and a lot of it came down to his level of experience like he wasn't some guy that happened to be Nav's mate who made it. He was actually a very senior finance developer who had ties to the CFTC and stuff. So the argument was that he should have known better, basically. Um, and ultimately that case went on and on and he beat the, the federal case against him, but he ended up settling with the CFTC, I think. Um, and so admitted some sort of culpability. Um, I mean, you know, I sort of try and veer clear of, of you know, coming up with, with judgments on that. I guess what I would say is, to me, it seems like there should be some level of responsibility for third party vendors of any kind to have some kind of uh, scrutiny of their, of their customers, whether that's a bank um, or whether it's a computer programmer or whether it's somebody who's going to design a weapon or something like that. Um, ultimately, it's down to the individual actor to commit the, to commit the crime. But, and I think that if J Jitesh had, for example, just asked what he was going to use it for and reassured himself that it wasn't for anything nefarious, then I think it would have been different. But the fact he didn't ask any questions suggested that he was just really 
not interested in, in finding out the answer. Um, so I think, you know, you have to take it on a case by case basis. But I think, for example, there's been brokers um, that have been fined and have been sanctioned because they haven't scrutinized their customers' trading activities. And I think I could imagine a similar sort of thing in, with this as well, um, whereby you have certain basic responsibilities. And as long as you can meet them, then you're okay. But if you don't, then um, you, can be, you can be potentially culpable. What do you think? <laughs> well, it, Michael and I, we, we actually talked a lot about this a couple of nights ago. We were, we were talking about the book and some of those moral questions. Uh, we don't have any definitive answer at the moment yet. I think I, I pretty much captured my, my, my earlier thoughts and some of our thoughts earlier, which is that we, we show some kind of sympathy for Nav as this guy who you know, is kind of carried away by his own flaws, but also some of the broader trends and what he sees as injustices in the system. Um, and, and the system has certainly drifted towards a direction that I don't think is honestly an idea of one man per se or one woman per se. It's, you know, somehow the direction that this financial world we're, we're seeing, the headed right now we're seeing, is also mixed with machine learning, rise of artificial intelligence, data science, which are not, you know, financial world Goldman Sachs inventions or their own manipulations per se, but somehow is, is and also the, the fact that bigger firms get bigger and they get more competitive and they have an anti-competitive effect spilling over to other things. I mean, we see that in pretty much every industry. I mean, the finance world is probably a little bit more concentrated because you, you deal with money, so you make money a little bit quicker, but I mean, it would be so hard to start a consumer brand right now and, and start selling foods in grocery stores, right? So starting a small business or small shop is, is hard anywhere, it feels like. Yeah, I, th I think that's, <laughs> that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the interesting things about these HRT shops is that they were quite sort of plucky little firms at the start. You know, they got very big and very, very quickly. But at the beginning, it was like seven guys in a room. They were sort of the vanguard. I guess that's true of any technology, isn't it, really? Any technology company, it starts with a few guys in their garage. Um, and this was kind of no different. One of the things that I, I do feel reasonably strongly about is that one of the flaws in the way that the American regulatory system is set up, and it, it's not actually just a, a unique to the US, but it's pronounced in the US, is that the first line of defense is the exchange. So in, in my book, it's the CME. And I spoke to you earlier, I mentioned earlier, but the CME's incentives are to have as much trading as possible, to have as much orders coming in and being canceled as possible. Now, HFT is an absolute dream you know, for, for them because by its very nature, it involves huge amounts of transactions. Uh, so they've seen their sort of profits hugely explode as a result of it. And at the same time, they're supposed to be responsible for scrutinizing the market and alerting the regulators when they see anything suspect. Um, and I just don't think that those two things are, uh, you know, I think there's a, there's a real inherent conflict of interest there. Um, there's never really been fully, fully dealt with, but it's certainly not just this case, you know, throughout my career, writing about sort of white collar crime and stuff, it just seems like that that sort of first line of defense has historically really not been effective at all. And it just doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I think I think that 
yeah, from your entire discussion, sort of, we've, you know, through, through all this discussion, sort of, you know, high-frequency trading and sort of the role of algorithmic trading as it goes, this is, you know, as we analyze problems like the flash crash, these are obviously, you know, we've already been talking for more than an hour about this one 20 minute event, right? We've been talking three times more than the event, but it's an insanely, <laughs> it's an insanely complex event. But I guess the, the main point is that, you know, this is a very exciting time for algorithmic, algorithmic trading where, you know, it can either go for the good and go for the bad. And there's, this is certainly a don't throw the baby out with the bathwater sort of moment. There are a lot of great things about, you know, this sort of making the market more efficient. And, you know, if we want to tie back to the role of, you know, the, I guess, relation to cybersecurity. I mean, in the 2016 presidential elections, that was a primary topic people were asking for. There were breaches everywhere. And there were huge questions about whether we'd ever sort of solve this problem of cybersecurity. You know, obviously it's never a solved problem. There's never an unhackable thing, but I would certainly say that field has matured a ton. So, you yes. know, from my perspective, this, this discussion that we're having, the things I'm hearing is definitely signifying that this seems like it's in the right direction as a field in a whole, right? NAV is a question in itself, but if we're talking about the field of algorithmic trading as a whole, it seems like, you know, when we think about questions like this and having these kinds of discussions, yeah. it seems like we can get in the right direction. Yes, I would agree with that. I think there's like economic drivers, you know, essentially you have four HFT firms, then you have 10. Now you have, you know, hundreds that are trying it. And essentially as a result, it becomes less profitable and, you know, becomes a more of a mature um, industry. And that in and of itself, you know, has sort of, some of the benefits and so this if you got in there at the beginning that was the sort of the, the best period um but i think yeah you're right that there becomes more of an appreciation for it more of an understanding regulators are able to sort of grapple with it better and for the you know for the time being it isn't the kind of uh maybe major priority that it that it was a few years ago Liam, did this remind you of cryptocurrency or the rise of Bitcoin at all? I mean, Michael brought up the interesting case of the founder of the Silk Road, who was uh, Silk Road is the site that started as this. I read that book. Yeah, the uh, what's it what's it called? The uh, Bilton Nick Bilton wrote a book, didn't it? It's right on the bookshelf behind, behind yeah. you somewhere. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, Silk Road started as this place that was supposedly to be the utopian decentralized marketplace and then ended up being people use uh, bitcoins to pay for cocaine right and and so when the u.s government went in and captured those people the the reaction from the public is that yes they did the right thing legally saying and then the other people would say yeah sure you might have done the right thing u.s government but it, it's horrible optics, right? It's a, the rise of some, you know, new innovation and, and you, you suffocated where you, and you come up with some kind of legal ground to basically, you know, throw the baby out of the bathwater, yes. whatever the expression was. So, um, so, so I guess people could even say that the US government could not control the system and nobody could control the system. So they had to pin it down on NAV, some random London day trader who, who, who <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that that's what regulation comes down to a lot. It's like, you know, individual cases and, you know, going for very sort of esoteric crimes or going for very specific individuals. Uh, because as you say, you can't grapple with the system as a whole because it's, you know, created by, you know, factors and sort of a tidal wave of, of, 
of like historical factors that are just beyond the ken of a regulator to sort of get in front of. Um, so but did you ever get a sense that the deep state is coming at you? The, 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 the uh, Policy Punchline is really aspiring to become the next Joe Rogan podcast. So we have to bring up some kind of <laughs> counter narrative. <laughs> saying, uh, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I haven't got into the QAnon book that I'm writing. <laughs> <laughs> it's all true, believe me. Um, <laughs> I mean, the crypto thing is pretty fascinating. Uh, there's a guy called Gary Gensler who used to be head of the CFTC and he's being sort of touted at the moment. Or he's, I know he's part of the transition team, but he was like an academic who was focused entirely on crypto and, and, and blockchain technology. And I think he's a bit of a kind of advocate, and a bit of a fan. So maybe that was sort of signals, you know, a bit of a, a kind of government uh, engaging with it as a technology and as a, as a field. Certainly as a journalist, you know, there's a lot of grifters <laughs> yeah. in that world, you know, and so the temptations to sort of view the whole thing is like essentially hot air. But, I, you know, I, I think that beneath it all, there is some uh, philosophically and technologically really interesting uh, substance to it. So, yeah, so, so where that goes, I, d I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think... Uh, by the way, I, I only brought up this uh, quote-unquote deep state thing just to goof around a little bit. I, but I, it seems to me that when I talk to regulators, they, they tend to be what I would call morally moderate people. They, they don't take very strong moral stance on those issues. They don't say, oh, I'm like Mr. X, that guy is a criminal. They, they, they're often uh, also kind of in the gray area. But I think what they do recognize is that their genuine interest to engage with, with things, but also their inability to sometimes to do beyond just capturing this one or two single criminals, right? How are they going to take down Goldman Sachs or, or, or something when, when they have uh, teams and teams of compliance people making sure that the, the, the big firms don't break the law? So that's one aspect of it. But I, I, I guess it goes back to my earlier point, which is that the optics has always been that you, you see some legendary figure being taken down. And then uh, whether it's through your book or through other popular media, uh, in the greater populace, people kind of uh, dramatize or romanticize those people into heroic figures against the big institutions or something, uh, which is quite fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I think as human beings, like we understand the world through sort of stories and narratives, and they're often the same stories. And the sort of David Goliath idea is just so pervasive and so like inherently attractive to people that I think that uh, Nav, you know, just, and the, thing, the thing when I was writing the book that I really, like it was almost like I, I've done so many stories about financial criminals and white collar crime and stuff, but Nav's like narrative arc was this kind of, he discovers <laughs> something and then he flies too close to the sun and gets greedy and then he gets, you know, comes crashing down and, you know, it's like the dark night of the soul and he's going to, face 30 you know 30 years in prison and then he sort of finds a way to kind of get out of it and get some kind of redemption it had just, just such a, a, a sort of hollywood style uh narrative that i didn't even have to <laughs> i didn't have to try to kind of imbue it with that because it was just this kind of life that he, he'd led but so so it, this um your book is being made into a movie as we speak right now <laughs> so, uh, uh, 
Would you mind telling us a little bit about that and also your own journey writing this book? Is you did mention in the author's note that this book came about by fate. So, yeah, um, yeah. So the book came about like I'm a like an investigative journalist at Bloomberg in London, and Nav got arrested in 2015, and it was just you know a big story at the time in sort of financial circles because he was a he was blamed for this big event, this, the flash crash. It was just so incongruous. Um, and it just turned out that I just happened to, uh, I happened to know quite well, I used to be good buddies with a guy who used to sit next to um, Nav at Futex, like the first place he ever worked. So I, you know, met this guy for a pint and he was just telling me all these stories about how he used to like, turn up late with his leather jacket and, you know, fall off his moped and drink milk from the carton and just all these kind of bizarre stories. And it was like straight away, it was just not like anyone that I'd really written about or even heard about in that kind of world. So, so that was like a real head start. And, and, uh, and I just, yeah, like normally when you're sort of phoning around after somebody's been done something brilliant or something bad or whatever. Like people are sometimes like struggling to remember them or whatever, but with Nav, like everyone remembered him. Like even though before he, they knew he'd done anything wrong, they just remembered the, the guy because he was just so like quirky and kind of funny and just memorable. Um, and so, yeah, you know, uh, when I was doing the book, like it turns out that my agent shared an agent with Dev Patel, the actor, and Dev Patel uh, is from like West London, quite near Hounslow. And he was aware of the story. He's almost exactly the same age as Nav. And so he like read the opening couple of chapters or whatever and the, the treatment for the book. And he signed up to, to produce it as a movie. Um, wow. So yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's a screenplay, there's a screenwriter. They don't, you know, involve me too much. Like they involved me at the beginning of it, but at the moment, I'm waiting, you know, waiting to hear on them getting a director and I don't know, I, you know, I, I don't know much more than that, but I think it would make a great, great movie. So I hope they, they do it, but you know, I don't, I don't think it's in development hell, but it's kind of uh, <laughs> somewhere around there. Development purgatory maybe. Michael and I were also quite um, curious to hear whether there were any particularly difficult parts of your writing journey for this book, the hard part to get information on, any anything that you found some some tricky moments. Yeah. Would love to hear those. Yeah, so so I, I you know I would describe it that when you do a book like this, it is a, a leap of faith that you have to back yourself that you're going to be able to get the stuff that you need because you haven't got it. Maybe sometimes you do, but in this sort of instance, it's like you're aware that there's a great story here. And so you get a book deal and then you have to go away and get all of the reporting. And, and that's really a, a tough process at the beginning because no one will talk to you. And so you spend the first like few months trying to persuade, you know, a couple of people to talk to you. And, you know, in my experience, you know, it's like a domino effect where or a kind of avalanche thing where gradually over time the more people that talk to you the more um information you gather the more you were able to put that to other people and the more they sort of feel obliged or they that they have to talk to you because you're writing about them and eventually 
you're kind of able to get ahead of steam going and, and, and sort of build up the material. But at the beginning, it's pretty scary and pretty <laughs> lonely because you don't know you're going to get it. You know, particularly with the government, obviously government uh, officials aren't uh, supposed to talk to, to the press, you know, in, in unauthorized ways. So you have to sort of convince people. Uh, and the way that you go about doing that really sort of varies from, from individual to, to individual. Um, Michael and I do it by pretending to be students. And we say <laughs> this is a podcast interview. I was going to say, it? you look kind of old. <laughs> 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 Um, I mean, the, you know, the one obviously uh, thing I was unable to do is actually interview Nav. Like, I'm, you know, I met him a bunch through going to, to court and stuff like that. But um, he throughout was kind of in the judicial system. You know, he was going from case to case and he was assisting the US authorities. And so when I started, he wanted to, to sort of tell his story, but it just didn't happen. Um, so, yeah. He's going to be out of uh, sort of house arrest in January, so you know the dream would be that I could sit down with him and and just talk to him and get his perspective on on what's happened to him. And I don't even know if he's read the book, to be honest. So. Yeah. So yeah, that was so I sort of to riff right off of that. You so if you ever had a chance to have a coffee chat. With the man himself what do you what do you think you would hear what do you think he'd think of the book um i i think so so, the, so one thing i was able to do is go through quite a, a sort of detailed fact checking process that was intermediated by his lawyer so basically i'd written the book and then you kind of send over you know 10,000 words of individual facts, like you know, everything from where he went to school to everything that he was, every basically fact that pertains to him in the whole book. And he would come back via his lawyer and there'd be certain things that, that he, he objected to. Um, and it just gave an insight into, in, <laughs> into who, who he is, because the things that he objected to weren't the kind of things that most people would, would object to. So for example, there, there, there was this kind of whole, there was there was like a section in there because he was like a massive football fan. He loves Lionel Messi, who plays for Barcelona. He's a great soccer player. And I'd put in the book that he was like, he had said something about how he hated Ronaldo, who's like his rival. <laughs> and I can tell you that there was like two days in which I was like arguing about how to sort of frame this discussion around how much Nad likes Messi and dislikes Ronaldo. <laughs> so he just didn't care that there was just all this material about how he'd lost all his money or you know he'd done done all these things. It was it came down to Messi. So I, I think <laughs> if, if I was going to sit down with him, it might not be the the kind of conversation. You know, I think it would be a, it would be a definitely an interesting conversation, but I'm not sure he would engage with his own life in a, in a way that a lot of people would. But I'd still be fascinated to do it. Yeah, I so this, you know, as we've delved into this story making process, there's, you know, a surprisingly fascinating story that came out of, you know, following this one character in the financial world. And I'm sort of curious what, you know, got you into generally doing journalism in the financial world, because, you know, this depicted right now is something very exciting. And I'm also curious about sort of your views on, you know, 
what the people at home should be paying attention to as far as these stories going on in the financial world? Um, yeah, so, so I don't think that many people that I know really wanted to be financial journalists. I think people like, you know, love literature or want, you know, want to be writers or whatever, or just want to be journalists. Um, and certainly for me, it was like, you know, I was living in London and I was kind of broke and, you know, the, the better, slightly better paying journalism jobs were financial journalism. So I kind of went into it, you know, thinking, oh, I was working for trade newspapers, writing about insurance, not hugely interesting, but, you know, you can still get a buzz out of like going after scoops and there's still some creativity involved in it. But it was only a few years later when it was the 2008, 2007, 2008 financial crisis that suddenly like finance was like really the story. And it was like, you know, the collapse of Lehman Brothers and, um, you know, massive bailouts. And, and, and so suddenly at that point it became, you know, it became really fascinating and it became kind of front and center. Um, but the thing that really allowed me to sort of fall in love with it came later in my career, which is where I sort of realized that you could sort of combine like storytelling and narrative nonfiction with telling stories about finance and banking and traders and things like that. Um, so then, you know, so then, you know, the, the very best, you know, Michael Lewis is, is, a, is a very obvious example, but, you know, there's lots of examples like, you know, James Stewart and, you know, people that are just able to write beautifully about this world. And, you know, a lot of the things that you're writing about are really human drivers and motivations and psychology. And you, you could be writing about tech or you could be writing about politics and, really at, at root it's about sort of people and the decisions that they make and, and what motivates them and stuff um so you know once i sort of met people that are, are really you know great at writing narrative and stuff it was like then that i really just found the job you know fascinating and and and, and i think the reason why is because it is really about about people um and yeah i mean in terms of uh you know, where people should look next. I'm actually working on another story, which I think is going to be out this year. Um, but uh, I don't know how much you guys are aware, but on April 20th, the uh, oil market collapsed. Yes, negative oil price. Negative oil, yeah. And at first there was this kind of real rush to say, essentially it was all fundamentals, there's nothing to see here. Um, and the story that we're working on suggests that actually that there was like a, a small number of individuals that uh, had a big part to play in it. I can't really say much more than that, but it's, it's a lot of resonances of NAV in the sense that, you know, people assume that massive markets are driven by huge companies and oil majors and, and, and actually they're not. Like at certain periods of time, you know, you can actually have a real oversized impact on the market being a relative minnow. Um, and these guys are really, they're different to NAV, but they're equally kind of quirky and interesting. So, yeah. Well, we're about to get some big scoop here. <laughs> What's this space? No, that sounds fascinating. I mean, well, hopefully we can um, talk about that that then when 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 it comes out and st stuff like that. I, I know uh, we're already we've been already talking for like an hour and a half. I do want to wrap up here. Um, two quick questions to to end the interview, Liam. One is. We, we talked about all the you know morality judgments, trends in financial industry. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the the, the 
trend towards which the financial industry is headed at large? I mean, that's a very broad general question. Please take it whichever way you'd, you'd like to be. And the second question is, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, what would your punchline be for, for your book, for the markets, for anything? So, so those two concluding questions. Um, yes, yeah, so, so on the subject of how optimistic I feel about the financial markets, I think that um, <laughs> I, I think do you that, think it's doing more good than bad down the road? I think that there's, there's bigger things to worry about at the moment in the financial system. I think that the kind of uh, political system and you know things to do with the environment and things like that are, are actually more of a sort of priority. And I think that you know in two thousand and eight. The, the onus and the focus was on the financial system and, and a lot of what happened then and the sort of recession that followed was caused, uh, you know, directly as a result of financial malfeasance and, and poorly designed systems and stuff like that. Whereas, I, you know, I, I, I personally just don't think that that is the, the focus. Like, do I think that there are elements to the way that the financial system is designed and regulated that could be changed? Definitely. But um, I don't feel hugely pessimistic about it, but maybe because I'm just sort of pessimistic about... <laughs> so much so much else that's going on um and yeah i mean as a sort of punchline i guess what i would say is that um you know through through doing my job there aren't many people that i've met that don't feel entirely justified by the way that they act and, and what they do um and you know it's easy to sort of paint people as, as sort of villains and heroes but obviously that, that you know that that isn't how the, the people work and how the world works and i think that ultimately therefore it's the job of of government and regulators to sort of design the system and design incentives um to encourage better behavior as opposed to uh you know expecting human beings to to behave you know in ways that are outside their their characters or just you know human basic human drivers i don't know that's, that's slightly waffling but that's uh, <laughs> that's the punchline that, that, that sounds great i mean it's a fascinating interview Th thank you so much for 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 joining me today liam and also michael i i want to advertise this book to our uh viewers and listeners again if you're watching us on youtube you can see the book uh, flash crash a trading savant a global manhunt and the most mysterious market crash in history, it talks about the 2010 market crash in 20 minutes and 30 minutes. Uh, the global markets tanked and then quickly recouped all the losses. A, a mysterious moment and also quite fascinating moral ethical implications for regulations, for the financial markets, for NAV, this very interesting character. Uh, please go buy the book. Uh, check out Liam's work on, on his site. Um, Liam, is there any other uh, way we can find you, read about your work? follow you anything else you want to tell our um I, you know i write for bloomberg and business week so you can you can follow me that that way and i'm on twitter as well uh, it's liam vaughan uh, bbg so check that out but uh, yeah thank you guys it's been really fun i've done a lot of these interviews and we sort of went down some avenues that I haven't done up until now so thanks mm. very much this is a fascinating conversation thank you again for for joining us today F follow us on policypunchine.com uh, listen to us on itunes spotify uh, you watch this uh, video on youtube uh, thanks so much for listening today awesome thanks guys